As a business and leadership mentor, wife, and mom, I know that building a legacy business as a high-performing female entrepreneur can be overwhelming when you play many demanding roles in your life. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. You can be a powerful, high performer in your career, plus enjoy a fulfilling marriage and be a great mom all at the same time. Join me and my guests every week to get the inside scoop on what it really looks like to build a high growth business while living a life truly aligned with your family and personal values. Hey, hey, and welcome back to the Built to Last show. I'm so excited to have Tracy on today because Tracy and I know each other really well. Um, I know if you're listening to us on our podcast, you cannot see us. Um, If you're watching this, maybe I'll put this up on YouTube. We look like we might be related. (laughs) We both have like blonde hair. We have a really similar like face shape. I think we have a similar nose. Tracy Mm -hmm. popped on, we record this, we can see each other. And I was like, Tracy, we could like pass as like relatives. Maybe (laughs) this is so cool. So we are good friends. Uh, We met in a business mastermind that we are both part of and have been for a couple of years. So Tracy, I'm super excited to have you today. I'm super excited to be here. I can't wait to see what we even talk about, but I love that every time we see each other, we're like, oh my God, we look like family. (laughs) We really do. Maybe that's why we get along so well. Yeah. Um, All right. So let's start here. I would love for you to share with us. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Tell us about your business and then we'll pick it up from there. Okay. Well, and I was thinking too, um, because I know a lot of people that are listening are their parents, right. And they have businesses. So, um, because I've been an entrepreneur since I was a little kid and, um, and this carried even through, um, when I had my children, I had my children many years ago. And, um, when my first kid was born, I thought, okay, I need a business. Cause I was trying to be a stay at home mom, which I horribly failed at. Um, and so, I developed a babysitting service and I did a children's software catalog. And like, I had all of these different things that I did when my kids were little until I finally went back to work. Um, I've had a, a, I guess, an interesting path when it comes to career because I worked in corporate, but I was always an entrepreneur. And so, um, and I raised my kids through that. I got divorced when my kids were young and, um, And I just, I I just kept coming up with business ideas that would be based on um, marketing and sales after a while, because that's what I would do when I was in corporate and then management. And so all of those things kind of led me to um, leaving my last job. My last job was in 2008. And I was at the time in a dysfunctional relationship. My kids were a little older at that point. And I'm just kind of laughing because I didn't plan on becoming a coach. Um, I had read a book and I thought the book was great. And I met the author of the book and decided um, that I would work with her and her business partner on their coaching program and ended up that they said, oh, we want you to become a coach. And I'm like, I I don't want to be a coach. How am I going to make money being a coach? Like I had done so many other things. Like I had a cookie business twice. I mean, I had all these different businesses, right? How am I going to make money here? I don't see that. So long story short, ended up taking the training and became a coach. And one thing led to another, and I've been doing it for almost 14 years. What kind of coaching? (laughs) It was love coaching. 
Oh, you started out as a love coach. I started as a love coach. And that was like the last thing I was capable of doing at that point in my life. Don't you think a lot of us, I mean, if we kind of look at the landscape of people who have coaching businesses, I think a lot of coaches started their coaching business because they were going through their own process, their own internal stuff. They were climbing like their own mountain. And because they were in it, I think a lot of us started our businesses from that place. Yeah. I think that that's true. And what's interesting is the metamorphosis it went through because I knew I wasn't really a love coach and then trying to figure out what I actually was took a few years. It wasn't overnight. It was basically once I started sharing my story and I was super authentic about it and it was, um, I started writing it and I would put it on my blog and then I started writing for elephant journal and then Huffington post. And I was sharing things that were super vulnerable but giving people tips like, okay, you know what? I went through this and this is how I came through it. And that's how I started actually to get quite a bit of the clients to come to me. Yeah. So you started out as a love coach and you're not a love coach now. No. So will you share the journey of like love coach and then what, and then what, and then what, to what you are now. And when you share that, cause this is super common. Mm -hmm. Like, again, like I think a lot of us, we don't currently coach or mentor or consult or whatever we do on the same thing we started out as mm -hmm. some people do. And the other thing I, I see this a lot, you know, as a, a business mentor, people will start out with something and then they try other things. And then five or 10 years down the road, they kind of find themselves in this place where it's like, I'm not sure if this is it. And they revert back to what they started out doing. I see that a lot too. So will you share about your journey of love sure. coach to what, and why did you like, why were you switching from one thing to another too? I think that would be cool to hear. You know, I've always been a person and it's not necessarily that I'm looking for the comfort zone. I'm looking for alignment. And when I was doing the love coaching, there was parts of it that I loved because the way that I was taught to coach actually helped me to change, you know, myself, not just professionally, but personally. And so I, I bought into that a lot, but there was a disconnect for me in being a love coach when I wasn't really finding myself to be successful at it. But what I was successful at was <laughs> finding out that I had insecure attachment issues. I had never heard of it before. Uh, somebody I was dating said, you know, you read that book, Love Addict. And then I'm reading in this book, Love Addict, because I was like super avoidant. Like, I could be in a room by myself and I would be totally fine and, you know, just throw me food and I, you know what, I'll be, I can entertain myself kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really need people. <laughs> so for me, it was a journey of self-discovery that brought me closer to it, but it took a long time because I remember in 2000, I think it was 2012, I went to an event and I, you know, I had a booth at this event and I was a relationship coach at this point. And the reason I was a relationship coach is I was listening to other people tell me what I was. Oh, you're a relationship coach because you work with people that are dating and you work with people in relationships. And I was like, yeah, but I'm working with people that have dysfunction. It's not that they're trying to find a relationship. It's that they can't get out of their own way to either have a healthy relationship or to even date. Like, you know, I would have people that have been single for decades and they knew they had stuff to do before they could have a real relationship. So it was like little, I guess, signs along the way that led me to, okay, this seems to be something. And it was 
the more I focused on what authentically I connected to, what I was in alignment with, it just became like the suit I was wearing. It became the business. Um, even up until 2015, I was still kind of struggling with it. But what we did was I hired somebody for marketing and she did this whole branding uh, experience for me. And we really honed in on what is it that I'm offering to people? What is it that they're getting? And it was that like magic moment where things clicked and I thought, okay, you know what? I'm getting people from their head to their heart. That was one thing, mm -hmm. but it's what is actually happening so that they could, you know, live a life that they wanted to live rather than living the life that they thought they had to live. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was these little iterations. And then I uh, had a company in 2018 who kind of, they, they're kind of hard to explain. Uh, like if you go to their website, you'd be like, what do they do? But they had helped build people like Mel Robbins. And um, I always forget his name, the dude with the airplanes. Um, Grant Cardone. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They had built personalities like that. And they gave me the name behavioral relationship expert. And that's where that came from. But it's so funny because that's actually what fit because I had become so good at being able to see what, you know, someone's behavior was in a relationship, not just intimate, but any relationship and be able to see like their attachment style and be able to really discern and, and drill down into what was happening with somebody and help them to change their patterns permanently. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of like that step-by-step -step thing. I like that. But the other thing is I want to get my business now away from being a coaching business. Right. Oh, I'm going to hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So in terms of like the business model, I'm glad you brought this up because as coaches, um, we probably have a lot of coaches and consultants and service providers who are listening in on this. And most of us started out providing a, a one-on-one -on -one service, a private client offer, a more intimate offer. So whether it's one-on-one -on -one coaching, a done for you service, VIP days, personally, I think that is a fast way to grow. I also think that you get to be in the trenches with your clients and you really get to understand your clients' needs. I think that's such a great way to hone skills. And then most of us graduate from that because that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort, attention, energy, all the things, and it can kind of wear you out to coach people one-on-one. -on -one. So, you know, people will go to some sort of one-to-many type of coaching offer. Now, I'm not surprised to hear you say you're kind of moving away from the coaching space. I, you know, let's be honest. I think that's actually going to start happening more mm -hmm. right now. I think we're kind of in this season in the coaching industry where it's a, it's a kind of gotten a little bit wonky. It has been for a few years. I, I feel like we're at a bit of a tipping point. So I think we're going to start seeing more people move out of the coaching space or stop calling themselves coaches. Mm -hmm. I know I've had a lot of people say like, I don't even want to call myself a coach. You know, yeah. I'm a, I'm a mentor. I'm a consultant. Um, will you share like some of the, okay, let's go here. How do you know when it's the right time to make these types of switches and changes, shifts, pivots? Because you pivoted the kind of like what you were calling yourself, you pivoted who you're working with or the type of work you're doing with them. Now it sounds like you're going to shift into some, some new business ventures. How do you know when it's the right time to move forward with those things? So, and this is actually tied to how I've upped my pricing. It's tied to everything I've done. And that is, 
I find that I get uncomfortable. I get irritated. I have short patience. And I mean, those are signs to me that I'm not valuing myself in some way or I'm not growing myself in some way. So it's a real personal moment for me. Um, you know, when I shifted from one-on-one clients to really going towards groups, right? I knew it was uncomfortable because I hadn't really put a lot of stock into it. I thought, no, I'm still the best at delivering what I do. And I had a, I, at the same time, started training people to be coaches and I went into starting to do groups. And when I did that, it was about five years ago. Um, I started to see, okay, this is okay. And then I was doing the work in there and then now I don't. And so, and, and part of it is because I've made that evolution personally out of there, but on a bigger level, what I knew to be, you know, like right now, not wanting to be called a coach or doing the coaching it's because I'm at a point where I'm taking this encyclopedia up here and I'm really putting it into different kinds of programs, different kinds of distribution that to me will be just as effective and can probably reach far more people than a group coaching program because a group coaching program or a one-on-one coaching program isn't necessarily the best vehicle for everybody. And that has come through observing people in my business for so long and going, why are, you know, some people succeeding at this and why do some people fail at this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What, what have you found? I find that to be something that's really fascinating. You know, my background is in teaching. I was a high school teacher. So, you know, obviously you're watching a classroom of students and not all of them are getting a pluses. Um, some of them are failing, you know, a lot of them are getting B's and C's, and then you have your few that are getting A's and, um, you know, part of my background is working behind the scenes for a big coaching company. You know, you and I were talking about that earlier and hundreds of people were going through our programs. And when I had that position, it was such a good seat to be sitting in because you could literally study people. And, Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I was studying why are some people really successful in this container and why are some people not? And I still look at that to this day, like go back to that comment that you made, like not everybody does well or excels in one-on-one coaching. Not everyone excels in groups. So as a service provider, when you recognize that, how do you make decisions in terms of what you desire to provide to people, Mm -hmm. your business model, that you really love that works really well for your life and your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. How do you combine that with, but this is what people need. This is how people learn best. I think people get stuck in those two worlds. I think we can get like really hell bent on, but this is what I want to do. And how are, how are you making those decisions? So I make the, you know, it's funny because I used to make decisions so quickly, like, okay, got to do this, got to do that. But at this point, what's interesting, and you said so much, and I'm like, I want to get all of what you said, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's important. Um, you know, when I look at this, when I'm talking about walking away from being a coaching business, it doesn't mean that we're going to get rid of coaching altogether, or, you know, that we're moving completely out of it, because I think people that want to have support should have support and people that don't need the support, they shouldn't, you know, they don't need to, but the things that talk about, um, uh, success, or somebody failing a couple of things. One of them is their motivation to begin with. 
a lot of people do not realize that they have extrinsic motivation rather than intrinsic motivation when they sign up for something. If I have extrinsic motivation, I'm looking for validation. I'm looking for things outside of me that are going to reward me. Those are hard to be committed to, at least in any, you know, any capacity beyond, let's say a time limit, right? Well, maybe I can do this for a few weeks or if it costs them in terms of having to do deep inner work, that might be painful. They're like, yep, nope, got to stop here. So those are people with the extrinsic motivation. People that have intrinsic motivation are doing it because it they feel a sense of autonomy in making a choice to do it. They feel a sense of um, they're doing it for their own joy, for their own growth, for their own um, satisfaction. And those are usually people that are ready. And that's why it's so funny because I've been writing up um, all of this new material based on this because I was really looking at how much I can take people at a level of victim, okay? Because everybody, we all have some level of it. You know, hopefully people work on it and it gets to be really, really small. You know, like those moments when you're like, something spills and you're like, okay, universe, or what are you doing to me? You know, like we have these moments where we didn't do it, but we did do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, you have people who are so down the rabbit hole, they're blaming everything outside of them and when you blame everything outside of you, it's hard to be committed to actually whatever it is you sign up for. It doesn't matter if it's mindset or if it's business, you're not going to follow through. You're going to find problems with whatever it is. You're going to, you know, complain, you'll drop out, you'll do these things because your self-worth isn't really there. You know, it's that victim energy. It's that victim victimization, you know, it's part of like a relational dynamic where you have to be the victim and the rescuer and the persecutor. And a lot of times people don't realize like our whole society is caught up on that movies. Everything is geared to it. And we bring it into every relationship we have personal or professional. And when you do that and you don't see that position, you don't have the awareness, you know, your own self-awareness, you're literally having a difficult time sticking with a goal. You will not stick with the goal. You will find excuses because you're in that place of being a victim and you have not really checked out your own motivation. And the motivation thing I was talking about, there's a great theory. It's called the self-determination theory. And that talks about intrinsic motivation and ex um, extrinsic motivation. Hmm. That's fascinating. We can, we can have a whole show just about that topic right there. Um, yeah. Okay. One of the questions I have heard over the years from clients is, um, you know, I set a goal. Every time I set a goal, I let myself off the hook and I don't actually like reach it. Or why am I not actually doing the things that I put in my calendar to do that I know are going to grow my business? It, I think a lot of it has to do with what you're talking about right here with the intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Totally. Because a lot of people don't know why the heck they have the goals they do. Mm. That is a big problem because some people have goals based on their own state of lack. Okay. Like, and this goes to again, personal and professional. I have to have the perfect job or the perfect business or this amount of money. Otherwise I feel a sense of lack inside of myself. I don't have that self-worth. My self-worth again is based on something extrinsic. It is hard to keep that drive up. I mean, some people do but they feel empty inside, right? Because there's no inner connection to it. And when you get stuck in that sort of, um, I call it like the merry-go-round, but it's a pattern. Mm -hmm. You don't really ever 
get to what it is you really want for yourself because you're too afraid to give up whatever you have accumulated at this point. And not that you have to give up things, but most people are not really clear on where their wants come from besides a state of lack or what they've been told by everybody. Well, you got to do this or you got to do that. And then they still don't know, well, what is it that makes me tick? What is it that gets me out of bed in the morning? What is it that's going to thrill me? And that doesn't mean that people have to actually quit what they're doing. They just have to perhaps get to a place of intrinsic motivation that's going to shift their perception of what they're doing. And then they'll be able to keep to the things that they commit to. Mm -hmm. How do we know if we have set a goal that is actually in alignment with us versus setting a goal that isn't. For instance, you know, I work with people in their business Mm -hmm. and almost everybody has money goals. And anytime you ask them a question and you could actually be kind of fishing for more of a answer in the, in a life category, um, they always start with an amount of money. And I think a lot of people, a lot of business owners set money goals that they, they have no idea why they're saying it. I think a lot of people have money goals because of the money goals they see other people talking about all the time on social media. I find that sometimes people don't even know what the purpose for that amount of money is. Like, why do you want to make, what's, what are you going to use it for? So how do we know that we're in alignment with our goals and we're not just setting a goal because it's what we think we're supposed to be doing, or we're hearing it or seeing it all around us? I look at it from the perspective of, let's say your goal is a money goal. I think a money goal is really hard to stay excited about and to have a passion for and that motivation. Now, that doesn't mean you can't reach the money goal, but it's really like, to me, it's what is my actual goal? Like, what is the work that I'm going to do to get to the, let's say it's $10 million or something, right? Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of times, again, that comes from a state of lack. And that's why people don't ever reach their money goals because they're not coming. Okay. Let me back up. They're not coming from a place of motivation. That's a healthy motivation. They're coming from drive. Drive is from lack drive is I'm driven to do this. I don't know why I'm like a freaking machine. I'm going to do this because I'm proving something to somebody. That's where that comes from. And then, you know, they do it and then it's like, oh, okay, well, no big deal. Nobody really cares or that validation I was hoping to get, I don't even feel it. So that's one aspect, but the people that, you know, put that number out there and then they don't get there and they struggle with it and they beat themselves up over and they're disappointed because they have all these expectations and they can't live up to it. They really have to examine why they want that in the first place. Like, this is like the inside work. This is where you got to go. What is the meaning I'm giving to this? Because where we place meaning is very much in alignment with the motivation. If I have meaning in money, why? What is it that gives me the meaning? What is it that gives me a sense of maybe I'm just like my peers or maybe I'm better, you know, the best one in my family. I'm the only one who ever succeeded or, you know, whatever that crown is. But it's like, what is the meaning for that for you? Mm. Why do you have meaning in that? Mm -hmm. This is so good. Oh my gosh. Uh, this is amazing. I love that. Um, all right. So something else that I know you talk about a lot is this little thing called imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot of, again, like a lot of our listeners are different stages of business, but the imposter syndrome seems to come up 
for people at every next level they are embarking on reaching. What is imposter syndrome? Where does it come from? Why do we have it? Does some, I, actually, I would really love to know this too. Do some people have imposter syndrome and other people don't? And if so, like, like why? Why do some people have it and some people don't have it? I think the people that, and there are people that don't have it, those people are, and this is going to sound horrible, but usually people that don't have imposter syndrome are not trying to achieve much. Okay. Now I say that because imposter syndrome is a whole other, I mean, it's, it's like its own book, right? And with imposter syndrome, a lot of times we feel to have the kind of success we want, whether it's, I, you know, I'm going for an interview for a job and I get the interview and I ace it. And then they hire me and I start to feel that feeling of, oh God, they hired the wrong person. Why did they hire me? You know, I'm not, I'm not any good. You know, you start beating yourself up. Right. So this all comes from the lack. Again, I go back to the lack. I go back to scarcity and scarcity is also related to insecure attachment issues. Um, and insecure attachment isn't necessarily that you had to have a horrible childhood. Let me just point that out. You didn't have to have, um, you know, parents that mistreated you. Um, there's different things that can trigger it. And imposter syndrome is related to it because there is this sense that I can't be myself and be successful. I have to be whatever I've built, this caricature, let's say, this facade that I built, that is what is going to be successful. You know, like when I look back, for example, um, on my uh, last time in business or working in corporate, I was a vice president and I was like, oh, I'm a vice president. And I didn't like feel that connection. And I kept thinking, I can't believe they hired me. I can't believe they hired me. You know, um, I'm not a vice president. And I felt like I had to prove myself. Nobody told me I had to prove myself. I would show up each day going way over and above what I was supposed to do because I didn't feel like they gave me enough work because I didn't realize like, as you climb the ladder, you don't, you don't have as much work as you do when you're the implementation crew, you know? Right. Yeah. So yeah. it was, it was like, uh, for me, it was that, okay, Tracy, you can't be you and be successful. Why? And that was a big part of, okay, what is it? And you're right. Like every time you hit a different level, it brings up another insecurity. It's the insecurity of, do I deserve this next level? Can I achieve this next level? You know, what's going to hold me back? And, and a lot of it comes back to the same place. It's like, you can work on these beliefs to the degree that you're at, at this certain level, right? And you work on it and then you move on from it. And then you hit another level and it hits the belief in a different way. So it's not that you really get rid of negative beliefs you shift them. And as you let go of your negative beliefs in terms of them running your life. Okay. So I'm not going to try and go too far off here, but we have negative and positive beliefs and unfortunately imposter syndrome and anything related to it is from our negative beliefs. It's not from our positive beliefs. Most of us, when we are perfectionists, when we're people pleasers, when we're trying so hard to be this other person, the imposter, seriously, um, what we do is we are working off negative beliefs and we're basically reaffirming them over and over and over again. Every time you're a perfectionist, every time you're people pleasing, every time you're assuming, every time you're personalizing, like there's a whole list of things that we do. And what happens is that makes everything feel impossible when you get to a new level, like basically getting out of your comfort zone and getting to the next level. Okay. 
So as you work on not being a perfectionist, not being a people pleaser, all those kind of things, you start to actually even out your positive and negative beliefs so that you're able to handle both. And you can actually feel like if somebody compliments you, you actually feel it instead of trying to go, oh no, you don't need to compliment me or you know, that's not necessarily true or any of the other stuff that we do when somebody gives us a compliment. And it's really hard when you feel like an imposter because that really feels like you can't feel it. You can't even take it in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you want to be able to get to the positive and negative beliefs being more in balance rather than out of balance. And for me, like I look at my own growth and that is what has helped me because now when I'm getting to the next level, I don't necessarily feel the feeling I used to of like, who, who am I to do this? What am I doing? I can't do this. This is impossible for me. Well, that feeling can come because I never have done this before, but it passes because I realize the more me that I am, meaning the more in alignment I am with the goal, the more I do not feel any sort of, oh God, what am I doing? I don't have that imposter syndrome anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So you have used this term insecure attachment a few times. I've actually, you're the only person I've ever heard use that language before. And I know that this is like the work that you do. I am really interested to hear um, if you, if you'll share any examples of do coaches or service providers when they're working with clients, Mm -hmm. could insecure attachment show up between like the coach client relationship? Like if so, like, what are the signs of that? And how do you, how do you, I don't want to use the word fix. How do you navigate that? If it, how do you even know if you have insecure attachment? Like, especially with like coach client, like either the client has it or the coach has it or both or what, like, how does that show up? Okay. (laughs) Um, And there's, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that it can actually show up. I got to move my shoes. I tend to sit up on my chair. (laughs) Okay. Anyways, when it comes to insecure attachment, especially when it comes to professional relationships, it's going to, I'm going to use this word that I know a lot of people go, oh God. So if you have a tendency to be codependent with your clients, then you are looking at insecure attachment because you're wanting more for them than they want for themselves. First of all, you're more invested in them getting to wherever it is that you, you know, they say they want to go, or you think they should go to. Um, so that's one clue. Another is when you're hard on yourself for the performance of that person. So whatever they're showing up and doing or not doing, you personalize it and you make it about you. And that also is a sign because people that are securely attached feel whole. You know, it's not that they don't have problems. It's, you know, and I'm not saying anybody listening, I have no idea, but it's not that people don't have problems. It's that when you have secure attachment with yourself, there is self-love. There is this um, ability to generate that. And, you know, and I always think self-love is one of those words where it's like, oh my God, what the heck does that even mean? Um, But to me, it's all of these things that you stop doing and the things that you start doing and you break certain patterns of behavior. But when you have insecure attachment issues, you are a perfectionist. I will say over and over, you're a perfectionist. So you may have the same expectations of your clients um, because you know what you would do, let's say in their situation and you don't see them doing it. So it can be a big problem. If you have a client that's insecurely attached, 
they're going to find problems with what you're doing with them all the time. So they're going to, you know, be on top of you about, you know, complaining or asking you questions like, why are you going to have me do that? Or, you know, that doesn't sound right. Like they're second guessing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is, you know, when you give more of your time, like one of the things that I used to do was I would have these hour long coaching sessions. Oh, well, I have a client that, you know, keeps talking. Oh, shoot. I've been on with them an hour and a half. Oh, now it's two hours. Like I, for a long time had trouble with boundaries and I, I, you know, I had none really. Mm -hmm. And I didn't value my time because I didn't treat myself as though my time mattered. And so it was things like that were just these, you know, hello, pay attention here. You've got something going on. And the more that I did this work of moving out of my own way and breaking these patterns, I was able to have the boundaries where now it's just like not even a question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's so interesting. I definitely see some of those tendencies and have, if I look back on my career being a Mm -hmm. coach, I've definitely seen some of those tendencies in myself and some of the things that you just shared, I have seen in clients too over the years. So, Mm -hmm. all right, let's say that someone listening to this is like, holy cow, like I am showing some of these early signs of, uh, imposter syndrome or insecure attachment. Can you give us, give them a little bit of a direction on, okay, I'm aware of it. I see it. I got it. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I do? You know, if they've been operating this way for 30, 40, 50 years, I can imagine that's not, you don't just break that overnight. Mm-mm. So what would be like their next step? Like what could they start doing to move beyond that? Okay. I mean, there's a few things, but one of them is to increase your awareness. I always talk about you go awareness feelings and then you take emotionally risky action. That's sort of like this three play. Um, Most people don't understand what emotionally risky action is because we think that breaking patterns is mental. It's not mental. It can't be mental. Your belief system was developed because you had emotional reactions to things as a kid over and over again that created that belief. You know, if you keep hearing people say the same thing about you as a kid, then you start thinking, oh my God, that's me or, you know, in events back that up. And so, and you have an emotional reaction to that. You're not going to have an emotional reaction to somebody saying the sky is purple. You're going to go, okay, it's not. So that's not going to become a belief, but things that feel real to you become a belief. So to be able to break a pattern, you have to have an emotion behind it. That's going to change through taking action. So it's like all these things have to sort of line up to do that. But first you have to have the awareness. So, you know, like the things we're talking about today, somebody could go, oh my gosh, okay, that's me. Like you're saying, and to move beyond that is to start taking responsibility for it. Hard to do because a lot of times we don't know why we do the things we do. 95% of what I do in a day is on autopilot because that's what human beings do. We just do the same stuff over and over. So to even bring awareness to, oh my God, I am saying this, I am doing this. If you can stop, you know, stop that action and tell somebody, you know what? I realize I'm doing this because of an insecurity I have, or I realize I'm doing this because I wanna control the situation, or I realize I'm doing this because I'm in a lot of pain. Like being vulnerable, and actually opening yourself to that, you're starting to break a pattern because that is an emotion that is caught up in whatever you're saying. 
and you're taking control, you're managing your emotions, you're managing yourself more, and that actually starts to fill your energy back up. Problem is, when we're doing perfectionism, all these other things, our physical, emotional, mental energy is going out of our body. We are working hard, you're exhausting yourself. When you're not doing that, and you're taking ownership of everything you do, everything you say, you know, how you show up, you start to feel more empowered, you start to feel more confident, because you're not your energy is not leaking out of you because you're trying to prove something to someone else. So it really is to start with that awareness. And then if you can take it to the next step of action, you know, through your words and your feelings, then you're going to start making a difference in your life. Yeah. So I can imagine that this is not the most easy thing to do by yourself. No. Right. Um, so can you share how people can reach you Uh, also tell it, I know you've got different ways people can work with you. So if someone's like, wow, you are like, so speaking truth, I am identifying some of these qualities in myself and I don't even know where to begin, um, in, in working through them and developing some of these new ways of thinking and new ways of being. So how can people learn more about your body of work and get in touch with you? Great. Well, you can, if you want to learn more, you can go to my website, which is tracycrossley.com. Um, you can email happiness at tracycrossley.com and you would talk to somebody on my team and they would talk to you really about what it is that I do. Um, you know, I have different group programs. I have digital programs. Um, I have a 30 day digital program. That's awesome. I mean, I'm never a proponent of, oh, you know, lots of digital programs are great, but this a lot went into it. Um, it's a great program, but if you want people like as in mentors to help you, then you want to join one of my group programs. And we have like a boot camp style, which is 10 weeks. And then we have a year long program. Also, I have a book that is coming out. I don't know when this is airing. So it's, it comes out October 26th um, and it is called overcoming insecure attachment. And it's basically eight ways to be healthier. Um, and some of the things I've talked about today are in there because I really wanted to make it a how-to guide, um, rather than just another book to read, gather information and then go, okay, great. What do I do with this? So there's a lot in there about that. Um, but my programs are really about helping people to connect to themselves in a way that when you were born, you were probably connected to yourself, but your conditioning, you know, it's, it's like we live in an environment, whether it's at home or around us that conditions us. And so it's really about being able to get back to that connection we were born with. Yeah. Um, we will make sure we put links to all those things below in the show notes. Uh, so that book will be out by the time that you are hearing this. So that link will be below. And, uh, you also have a podcast, right? Yes. Yes, I do. Tell us about that because some podcast listeners may want to go head over and follow you over there. Okay. So I have, uh, two podcasts. One of them is freedom from attachment, where I talk about this. I have about 600 episodes talking about this, whether it's personal or professional. Um, And then I have another one, it's called moving on. And that's my interview style podcast, where I talk to people who have gone through some, you know, some metamorphosis in their life at some point. In fact, Megan was on there uh, recently. And really it's to give people that idea of, oh my gosh, you know what they went through that. I can do it too. And get out there and live. Amazing. Tracy, I like wish we still had time because I have so many more questions to ask you. Um, This has been so incredibly insightful. I think that what you shared, a lot of people are going to see in themselves uh, and have some new level of awareness just from this short episode today. So thank you so much for being here. 
You are welcome. I've loved talking about this. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the Built to Last show. If you're loving the show and have gotten any value out of it for your business and life, would you mind doing two things? Subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and leave us a review. Our listener reviews helps us get more visibility and reach more people just like you. Help us make a difference for more entrepreneurs by helping them grow their businesses in a way that aligns with their life, family, and core values. Thank you so much for being part of our community and tuning into the show each week.